Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. On January 8th of 2010, there was a video that was released that was simply called Double Rainbow. And it took the world by storm. If you never got to see this video, or maybe you don't remember much of this video, I'm going to show you a clip of this video. Now, before I show you the clip, I want you to also take inventory of what your reaction is while watching the double rainbow clip. Here we go. Whoa, that's a full rainbow all the way. Double rainbow, oh my God. It's a double rainbow all the way. Whoa, that's so intense. Whoa, man. Whoa. 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 Oh my God, oh my God. Oh my God. Whoa. It's starting to even look like a triple rainbow. <laughs> oh my God, it's full on. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. What does this mean? very high cinematography (laughs) after the release of this video there were rigorous debates that begun with the double rainbow video could this be a genuine reaction of wonder or was this reaction simply just staged some people wanted to ask Was this man under the influence of something while he was experiencing this? In other words, the world wondered, could this be a legitimate experience? No matter which side you fell on of whether you thought it was real or not real, the video itself was revealing of our world. Even though people may see a video like this and your internal response may be to criticize it, This video had 50 million views, revealing a world that still craves to experience wonder. You know, I grew up in a household that where uh, we never actually used the phrase, oh my God, put together. It was something we were never encouraged to do, simply because the name of God was so precious and so holy that we would just never use it flippantly. So we would never use this phrase. And in a lot of ways, I appreciated that part of my upbringing. It's something that I will continue to do. But I do wonder if we strike that completely from our vocabulary, do we also strike out expecting to ever have experiences where the only thing we can say and do is claim and point 
to God. You and I live in a world where we assume what we see is what we get. In a world where skepticism is viewed as always intelligent. We live in a world with what you can touch and see and measure is truth. And anything that could push against those expectations is met with resistance. If you live in this type of world, there is not much wonder of God to go around. I want you to think about your life just for a second. Even like, just take it to a degree. Have you ever had a moment in life where you felt this overwhelming wonder with God. We actually have writing throughout history that has showed us the world has not always been this skeptical and this cynical. As a matter of fact, the world used to be a place where people were spiritual beings, that there were wrestlings every day with angels and demons, that you were susceptible to blessings or curses. There was a God that oversaw the world. The question was not, do you believe if there's a God? The question used to be, which God do you believe that created all of this? The world was filled with wonder and awe. Abraham Herschel, who was this Jewish scholar, described wonder and awe like this. He said, wonder is more than an emotion. It's not just the screaming at a double rainbow. It's more than emotion. It's a way of understanding. It enables us to sense in the small things the beginning of infinite significance and to sense the ultimate and the common and the simple. The question for you today is, do you still find divine wonder in this world? Do you see the ultimate God it points to in the common and the simple? And if your life is not marked by wonder, how do you get back? If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to turn to a story that uh, we're going to reflect on for a minute. The story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, or you're maybe new to the Christian faith or exploring it, all of the words are going to be up on the screen. But we're going to take a minute to walk through this story because this account isn't an account from Scripture that's filled with wonder, but may actually be a story that's lacking wonder. Read along with me, starting in verse 2. So he, he would be David, okay? David was the king of the day for the people. David and all his men went to Bela and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. And David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might. That's the Bible's way of saying they were getting after it. Okay, Before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, Sistrums. Don't you love a good song with sistrums? <laughs> and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and he took hold of the ark. 
because the oxen had stumbled. And there the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Paris of Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord now come to me? We are not given a dialogue inside of God's head to what is happening in this story. If you hear this story and it feels slightly disturbing, you have probably heard this story correctly. It's moving day for God's people. And this God doesn't just show up, but this God actually dwells with the people and he dwells through the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, which would have been like this divine box that they carried around with him. And this interaction as they're inviting God can leave us to wonder, scratching our heads. Because it seems in a lot of ways, like when we think about this, this reaction of God, it feels intense. It feels unfair. And quite frankly, it just feels a little harsh. And even though we're not told why, and we should be careful not to explain too much, there are two things that kind of arise from this moment. We get a clear sense, one, that God doesn't always think the way that we think. And the second that we get is that God isn't just code. God is a being who is portrayed as relational with the people. You know, we're not the first Christians to actually come to a story like this to try to be able to figure out how do we make sense of this with who we know God to be. And one of the words that Christians have moved towards in reaching to depict the nature of God is actually one of the words that's used in verse 7, that the Lord's anger burned. One of the images that the Bible will reach for in describing God is God is like a burning flame. You see this all throughout Scripture. You see when God approaches Moses, He comes as a burning bush. You see when God comes to Abraham, He comes as a smoking torch. In Revelation, you're given imagery of Jesus' eyes are literally flames. When the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts 2, their tongues of fire. In some mysterious way, Flames of fire describe the paradoxical nature of God. What I mean by that is what seems to be contradictory, but actually makes sense. This God is approachable and should be approached with caution. This God can warm, but this God can also consume. It's almost as if the writers of Scripture are trying to say, God's like a campfire. We need it. And we also need to give our attention to it. We must be aware of its placement and also know our place in regards to it. And for someone who's coming to church today, there is a precaution that I just want to say with this story. Sometimes we're tempted to use this story to paint a broad stroke of what God is like. This story actually kind of confirms our 
some days, worse fears of what God is like. That God is this divine being that's just really hacked off and He's one inch away from striking someone. Some of us grew in households where our parents were maybe reactive. And we picked up on the narrative that if our parents are reactive, then maybe our heavenly divine parent is also reactive. And I want to suggest just a way to hold this story with all the other stories in the Bible. Maybe think of it like this. Have you ever had someone try to speak into your life who does not know your life entirely? You ever had someone try to give you advice on a situation, but they don't understand the whole situation? One of, yes. One of the responses we say to people when they try to give us that advice is we say, I understand, I hear what you're saying, but that's not the full story. To take this one story of God and make this out to be what God is like in all times and all situations is to not pay attention to the full story of God. In the beginning of the story of God, when this God comes to God's people, this God describes His heart. And His heart is described this way. Exodus 34 is an example. And He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. When God describes God's heart, the first words God reaches for is compassionate and gracious. In other words, God is merciful, and God gives what isn't deserved. And then you find in that very next phrase, says God is slow to anger. If you were to go back to the Hebrew of how this is written, it would literally be translated of God's nostrils are long. Doesn't that clear it up for you, right? In essence, God takes a long time to think of like when someone gets really angry and they just, they're just, you know, snorting. It's as if the writers of Scripture are trying to say, God is not an angry matador bull just waiting to charge at something. This God plays the long game, the patient game of grace and mercy to us all. You even find in other places in Scripture, like Isaiah, where it literally says, when God does rise... Because God wants grace and mercy to all people. And when that doesn't happen, when this God rises, you even find the writer of Isaiah saying that his work is alien. It's not his default. His default is this grace and mercy. In essence, what I'm trying to say, bottom line, if you're coming to church today and you're just hearing about God, God's default is not reactivity towards you. God's default is is the long game of grace and mercy. It's very interesting in the Old Testament, you don't see the phrasing of God was provoked to love. You only see that God was provoked to anger. But what's interesting is in the New Testament, the last third of the Bible, you see the thing that humans need to be provoked to is love. Because our default is not love. That we have to be provoked to love and come close to God. 
And God, just like fire, just like flame, not only warms and illuminates, but welcoming God and coming close to the flame also means you need attention, reflection, and refinement, especially when it comes to being God's people in the world. You know, we usually come to this story, and when we hear this with God, we're like, oh my goodness, like, did God wake up on the wrong side of the bed? This sounds like very, very intense for God. Usually we first look and we say, what's going on with God? But sometimes a better question to ask is, what's going on with the people of God? They say that phrase like, the, the devil is in the details. When you look closely at the story, you start to wonder a little bit, of is there a lack of wonder in the people of God with these details? Let me show you what I'm talking about here. If you're following with me, first look at 2 Samuel verse 3. It says that the ark of God was on a new cart. Okay, God's got a new set of wheels. But this wasn't a new idea to have a new cart. This was a tested and proven bad idea. And you know who tested out this idea of the cart? God's enemies the philistines and when god <laughs> instructs the people to carry the ark he instructs the people to actually physically carry the ark the ark would have these loops on it and they would be carried by poles in other words the living god was something to be close and personal with not something mechanical and impersonal the second is actually also found in verse 3. The writer's actually going to take time to be like, you know, and we're going to let you know that Uzzah was the son of Abinadab. And you're like, thank you for telling me that. I don't know why that's relevant, though. This verse would be like a throwback Thursday post. Because we're actually told the last time we knew about God's ark, his covenant, we actually find it's in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. And this is what's actually said about the ark. So the men of the tribe of the name, I'm not even going to attempt to describe, came and took up the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to uh -oh, Abinadab's house on the hill. And the ark remained there for a long time, 20 years in all. In essence, Uzzah is not this random guy that's in the wrong place at the wrong time. We're told he's the son of Abinadab. That Abinadab had the ark of God for 20 years. Uzzah may have grown up with the ark in his own living room. He wouldn't have been unfamiliar of the ways to handle God and the ways not to handle God. But still, he reaches out his hand. Now, here's the third detail to also look within the story. This is in verse 9. This is David's response, his gut response when all this happens. David says, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? My care. That's an interesting way to frame that. His care of God. I have a friend who asked a Jewish scholar once, you know, the people who hold these stories. He actually, he actually said, like, hey, what do y'all make of this story? Because, like, we find it pretty disturbing. And one of the things that he said 
was that when it comes to the story, it all rests on this one verse and phrasing of how David says it. Because David's instincts are very much like our instincts. We like to think we care for God. When God is the one who actually cares for us. Sometimes we run in trying to protect God or save God, but God's the one who actually saves us. As we grow with God, there's always a temptation to become more independent from God when growing with God is actually becoming more and more dependent upon God. Quickly, what we see when the people of God are handling God, they are handling God impersonally, irreverently, and also individualistically. You know, there's a lot that we can't say that comes to this story. But when Christians have come and reflected on this story, one thing that has been true is that there's something fatal when God becomes impersonal, when we become irreverent, and when we become very individualistic when looking at God. That there's actually a death of wonder that happens over time. When we think that God exists just for us to build some doctrine or back up our personal political beliefs, wonder is dying out. The death of the wonder of God is happening when we think we've been around long enough that we don't need to hear the basics or try anything different. The wonder of God is dying around us. When we think that our transformation is dependent on us and we don't need others in the journey with us. And the most outlandishing thing is that David makes pivots and this God still moves with the people. I want you to look at several of these pivots very quickly that David makes. The first one is in verse 13. The people this time, no cart, they move it. And every six paces, which you're going to ask me how many, like how much distance is six paces? We don't know. It was more than what it was though. Okay. Every six paces, they're sacrificing a bull and a fatted calf. That's one. The second pivot that they make is in verse 14. It says that David actually wore an ephod. This would be another way of saying David does not dress himself up as a king, but he dresses himself up as a servant as he welcomes God back home. And then the third is found in verse 19. That actually says that this time, David actually invites the crowd of Israel and all the people together to celebrate what God has done in extravagant ways. In other words, when the people are impersonal and flippant and independent of God, David invites wonder in approaching this God and inviting this God home. David gets personal. David gets reverent. And David celebrates communally with God. And maybe one of the biggest wonders for all of us is that somehow this God, even when people make wrong turns, still turns towards them. That this God is receptive to people who turn 
towards him. This God wants to be with people and returns to be with them. And that is good news, not just for God's people, but also for God's people today. Because what was true for David to experience is also what we get to experience as people who worship the son of David, Jesus Christ. The good news is God's mercy and grace is actually moving towards us all. And if you ask, how do you even know that God's love and mercy is moving towards us? We know this because Jesus came through the line of David to show to us what was true of the God of the ark is true of the God of the temple, which is true in Jesus Christ. That this God dwells by entering with humanity. Jesus came to show us what it's like to be human, and then He died upon the cross to defeat the things that are defeating to us as humans. And then God raised Jesus from the dead to say that this God didn't just show up, but this God is going to return again. And our response is simply to be people of wonder in this news. That God came and God is going to come again. What's it mean to be a person who wonders? It means you are open to the new and unexpected ways that God is working everything out for God's preferred future. As we are into the month of December, this is a time where collectively the large church starts preparing and rehearsing the news that Jesus came and is coming. And today I want to finish this message by just handing you three ways that you can invite a posture of wonder in your life. If you feel like you do not wonder very much with God, I want to just suggest three possible ways to do this. That we can have a posture of wonder yearly, weekly, and daily. Alright, so number one. Having a posture yearly. What if you were to consider recognizing the yearly time known as Advent? So just like you have a secular calendar that organizes your day, tells you what season that we're in, except if you're in Texas, because it doesn't match the weather and the time whatsoever, but don't get lost in that point. You have a calendar that organizes your life. Christians as a whole have a calendar that helps organize our souls. If you've ever woken up late on a Saturday morning and you panicked, because you're like, oh man, I'm late to work. And then you realize, oh, you know what? It's Saturday. I'm fine. Christians also have a version of that. Just like there's a secular calendar, there's also a sacred calendar. That the church at large has taken the practice throughout the year of making sure we focus on every part of the gospel story. And this calendar isn't extremely different than a calendar you may be familiar to. Most calendars have Christmas and Easter recognized on it. In the Christian calendar, there's actually seasons that help us prepare for Christmas and Easter. And one of those we just started last week. It's the season of Advent, the four weeks leading up to celebrating the arrival of Jesus. 
And if you're unfamiliar with the wordage of Advent, Advent just means simply arrival. It is a four-week time of waiting, of preparing, of dwelling on the story that Jesus was coming. And then at Christmas, the song had it right. It's not just one day of Christmas. We have what we call Christmas Tide, which is 12 days of celebrating the news that Jesus has arrived. And all of that makes up one part of the season of the calendar. So one suggestion is just simply consider, if you want to introduce wonder, start by recognizing Advent. Because here's the thing, the story of Advent, the story of Jesus, if you from the outside look, it sounds a little ridiculous. Like we're talking like story of shepherds, stargazing, we've got virgin birth, we've got angels. And sometimes what we want to do in a world of no wonder is we want to just explain it all. We want to try to find a way to justify it. Advent's not a story you explain. Advent's a story that you live. Think about it this way. There's one way of talking about art. I can tell you about art, about how you can take a canvas and oil and minerals and you mix it together and it creates a piece of art. Or you and I can go sit in front of a beautiful piece of art for a couple minutes and take it in. One doesn't always match with the other. And if you've never done Advent before, I'd recommend just thinking about these two things. One, it's always helpful. You can, no matter what tradition you come from, you can just mark this time as unique if it makes you slightly uncomfortable. But we should mark our lives by making sure that we're covering the whole story of Jesus throughout the years that we live. But second is this is that when we participate in Advent, we are collectively celebrating and standing with our brothers and sisters, not only across the world, but also throughout history together. It's a moment of preparing and waiting. So that's the first one, yearly. The second one is weekly. What if we weekly took time to recognize the wonder of God. Now, this is going to seem a little bit like low-hanging fruit, and some of you are going to check out on me. Don't do that. 65% of believers today actually believe that they can just follow God without other people. One way that you can welcome wonder into your life is simply by committing to weekly come, coming to church together. Now, you may think this is a no-brainer. I'm already here. I got this locked up. Okay, here's the one thing I want to remind us. In the midst of a season where there are important games, okay, in a season where there are parties, in a season where there is traveling, sometimes going to church sometimes gets viewed as just something we add to our life when we can instead of a spiritual discipline in and of itself. I love the way Stanley Harwa says it. He says, it's offensive to think that you can go your life without being with a group of believers. The reason he says it's offensive is because if you think that church is just you yourself and going on a mountain alone with God, you're assuming that you can learn everything about God by yourself. Church matters because we surrender our definition to God. It's a giving up of choosing what you want to hear and who you're hearing it with. As one of my mentors used to say, Zane, you're not in church until you walk through the door and you go, who in the what? Who did, who did we let that person into here? 
You should have that type of reaction because when you gather with the different believers, you get to see different sides of God. Every week that we're together during this season, we're actually going to spend time hearing a different testimony of wonder together. And also, as a church, one of the things our children's ministry is going to do is they're going to give out wonder boxes that are going to be in the atrium today. Ways of weekly walking with your family through the practices of wonder. All different ways that we are introducing wonder into our lives. Okay, that was weekly. All right, here we go. Daily. What if you considered daily wondering about the news that God came and that God is coming. Maybe think of it this way. The other week I went and saw a excellent movie. I mean, it was just excellent. I'm not going to tell you what the movie was. I will assure you it was not the last Jurassic World movie because that was a disappointment, but uh, don't get caught on that point. I saw an excellent movie. And at the very end of this movie, I mean, extremely touching, very powerful. I did what every normal person does. Credits rolled, I stood up, and I began to walk out. And at the very top of this movie theater, there was this little girl that stood up on the railing and screamed at the top of her lungs with her arms out wide. She goes, thank you, movie theater. <laughs> and you know what happened? We all stopped and we, we started to clap together. And we were like, that's right, that was a good movie. We appreciate that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you need something that's going to wake you up from the mundane. There is news that a child was born and came. It's an indicator that God is doing something beautiful. God didn't just do something beautiful in the past, but God is doing something beautiful now. We need daily reminders to wake us up to the reality that the wonder of God is all around us. So what if you evaluated your morning and your evening and thought, how do I remind myself that we are remembering that God came and God is coming again? One of the ways that I'm going to do it this year is I'm simply going to have a Bible that's going to be laying out, and there are 32 days left in Advent. And each day, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read one verse from the Jesus narrative from verse 1 all the way to 32, but I'm only going to read one verse a day. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to wait for the next verse as a way of waiting in solidarity with God's people that Jesus is going to come one day. Find a creative way to do this in your life. I know for some families they do you know, Advent calendars. I know for others they walk their neighborhood each night praying for different family members. Some people actually pray in front of their tree to remember the light of the world. Find some way to interrupt your rhythms and to remind yourself of the good news. That God is not just close, but He came closer. And we need to hear it.